Hi, I'm Gail. Hi, I'm Catherine. And today we're honored to be in conversation with Dr. Margaret Cruikshank, Peg, who lives in Maine. So over 50 years, Peg has used her teaching and writing to challenge mainstream thinking about women, in particular about lesbians and women who are old. Peg taught women's and lesbian studies at several colleges, including 15 years with the University of Maine. And after retiring 10 years ago, she serves as faculty associate at the Maine Center on Aging. Now, Peg's groundbreaking book, Learning to be Old, Gender, Culture, and Aging was first published in 2003 and the third edition in 2013. She's also editor of Fierce with Aging, I have literature on aging. The revised edition came out in 2017. So Peg is proud of being honored by the Myers Center for Human Rights in Boston as among the best books of the year for two different books in two different fields, the Gay and Lesbian Liberation Movement and Learning to Be Old. So welcome, Peg, as an advocate for women aging. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege. Thank you. Now, Peg, you were a pioneer in many ways, uh, certainly in your teaching. You taught in the early women's studies programs in, I think, Minnesota and California, and you were taught in the first LGBT department in the country at a community college. Um, Just give us a sense of what, who and what influenced your feminist and lesbian lenses for your work. It's a good place to start. I think as far as feminism and lesbianism, living in San Francisco was probably the the key because feminism was in the air. There was a women's bank, a women's auto shop, a women's restaurant, et cetera, uh, nightclub, uh, Japanese-style bath. They didn't all survive, unfortunately, but it was a very heady time in the 70s to be in San Francisco. Imagine. Uh, when, when you published Learning to be Old, Gender, Culture, and Aging, it seemed to me that was probably a rather bold venture about 20 years ago. And tell us, what, is that, what does that title mean, Learning to be Old? Why that title? First, I should say that the editor kept asking me, is this a women's studies book? And I would say, well, yes and no, because a lot of this material about aging could apply to men. The title, I guess I had two two thoughts there. We don't obviously have to learn to be old. So that part was tongue in cheek. It happens to us. But I wanted to argue that if you know something about aging and you have a sense of it as a social construct and as an individual process, you might do it more comfortably or or with with more understanding and awareness and consciousness. And it, it, it's a major undertaking to talk about age in terms of as a social construction. So tell our, tell our listeners a little bit more about what that means to be an age as social construction. Well, if you step away from what happens to our individual bodies and think of how societies have viewed aging, what are the assumptions, what are the... Um, what are the underlying ideas for how aging happens in a particular society? Meaning possibly just social process. It's something we do in a group of people 
And if we look only at the age, at the individual parts, what happens to our bodies, I think we miss the bigger picture. For example, Social Security starting in the 30s greatly reduced poverty among old women. So that's an example of the, the social, the social dimension of, of aging. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm interested in what were some of the major misconceptions and myths that you tackled in that book? That was back in, you know, I think, 1992. What, what, what were the prevalent myths and misconceptions? Well, then? along with Martha Holstein, who I know has been in your series here, mm -hmm. uh, one myth was successful aging. It was actually just a synonym for healthy aging when the book Successful Aging by Rowan Kahn came out. I don't remember the exact date, but the whole notion that you could fail at aging <laughs> and the, the whole idea of success because it's measured in sports, for example, it's measured in business. How are we doing or profit or loss? But a complex human experience like aging really doesn't lend itself to simple, simple measurements. So that was, that was one, one myth to tackle. And recently, in the last week or so, I've been thinking that the idea that robots will be helpful and the key to helping old people who are isolated and lonely, well, they, may, they may be useful, but it takes attention away from the human dimension of caregiving, of, of um, aiding people who are isolated and, and alone. I'm sure they'd rather have a robot than nothing. Mm -hmm. True, true. Um, what do, are there certain myths or misconceptions about women and aging that you are still persisting that are with us today? Well, I suppose that women lose their attractiveness after a certain age, after middle age, and that they lose their value based on, on appearances. So there must be other ways that women can feel strong and in, in some control of the aging, although we don't really totally control maybe very much at all how we age, but that's another misconception, I suppose, that it's all, all in our, our power to, um, it's very white middle-class point of view, of course, because if you're poor, you don't have a lot of control over much of anything, much less how well you're going to age. And of course, rich people can have bad things happen to them in old age. They can get all the diseases of old age. They can be unhappy and miserable. But certainly having adequate financial resources, having money, having financial security, this is a really important part of, of uh, healthy aging. It's not just do we take our vitamins, do we this, that, and the other thing. It's uh, more complicated than that. And the new Alzheimer's drug, I want to make a comment about that because it's in the news now and it's controversial because the FDA approved it, as you know, even though some of the tests showed no results. Ordinarily, I don't think that that would be enough for approval. And many gerontologists are now saying it's not really efficacious, but there's a lot of demand. Obviously, so many people have dementia and they are hoping, praying for something that will help. So anything that might slightly have benefit in their view ought to be available. Of course, it'll be extremely expensive. And um, 
one of the side effects in the tests was uh, bleeding in the brain. So we probably don't know enough about this medication with the long, difficult name, but it'll be interesting to see if others come along as well. I want to go back to something you just said before the Alzheimer's drug, which of course is of great interest, Peg, and that, and that is the, the idea of money. Do you think that ageism prevails less in, in, uh, in, in strata that have money or, or not? I mean, what do you think? Well, that's, that's a good question. I don't know enough wealthy people to have a, have a you know, kind of personal slot on it. But what I think is that if you're insulated and protected by money, the, uh, the ageist insults that may be around or the misconceptions other people might have about you matter less because you feel powerful. You feel you're okay. Mm -hmm. So it affects your psyche so much more. I think so. Other than being equal, of course. Yes. Yeah. You, you talked about a little bit about the, the sociology, the, the social construction of aging, a little bit about the... Um, uh, I'm wondering more, a more about the psychology of aging, our, our individual, our in, how individuals think about aging and what you found in your teaching and your, your writings. Well... I would say off the top of my head that a lot of people are frightened of aging. And one of my goals with my students was to point out there are certain realistic fears associated with aging, but it's no means, by no means the disaster or the Susan uh, Sontag called it a shipwreck. Mm -hmm. Well, for an individual that, that, that could possibly be, be true, but as more people are healthier at old ages. I think that's what we have now in our society, more healthy people, and of course, a lot of ill people too, uh, that it will just be easier to see the wide range of possibilities in aging. And if you see the wide range of possibilities, it may be less scary to you to think that inevitably you're going to lose everything, inevitably it will be a, a bad experience. There's a woman in Maine died recently, Glenna Johnson, and she wrote an interesting article that included her feelings about looking at herself in the mirror. Now, for a lot of women, this is a scary experience. <laughs> for me, I look like my grandmother, and that's not necessarily bad, but it wasn't the way I used to look in the mirror. So anyway, Glenda says she likes looking in the mirror because she feels glad and she feels positive about how she's lived, and her appearance pleases her. I think that's wonderful and unfortunately uncommon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we think it, it seems to be uncommon. It's such a youth culture and the standard. One of the things I really appreciate about your work is calling, calling to task the standard, the youth standard, that if we just keep trying to be more youthful and look more youthful and act more youthful, we'll somehow stave off aging. And you say, but we're old, we're old and this is what old can look like and feel like. And uh, what, so what would you say to younger women about growing old? Well, I hope they would avoid the magical thinking that they can control <laughs> everything about it. And uh, there's a lot of, of course, use of Botox and, and other devices to conceal your 
your age. And there's a lot of profit to be made, obviously, in these negative feelings about old age. A company are very eager to sell you what will help your wrinkles, what will help your sagging. And I suppose plastic surgeons who use Botox are rather pleased by the thought that we have a growing yeah. older population. <laughs> but young women, I just say, be aware, be conscious, get to know some of the old women in your life, not as your grandmother. That's what my students discovered. They had good relationships with their grandmothers, but grandmother was in kind of a slot in a box. Once they took my class, they found that there were many facets of grandmother's life that they were discovering. They had no idea, for example, where some of them, the grandmothers had worked when they were young. And all this new material, I think, encouraged the student to think that her own old age might actually be okay. Mm. Um, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about the book Fierce with Reality, the literature on aging. You edited yes. that. What, what, what prompted that and what could, what well, could people in, find? I was in the gerontology program at San Francisco State and um, I had a PhD in English, which I was quiet about because I didn't want the professor to see me in a particular way. One professor said to me, Peg, have you ever thought of going to grad school? <laughs> which, of course, delighted me because I had successfully passed as an undergraduate. So I needed a thesis for this degree. And I, uh, I gathered material about from folk tales and other sources. It was, I remember at the time of the Gulf War and I wanted to indicate the humanity of people in Iraq. So I, uh, I included an Iraqi folk tale, but it evolved over the years. And when I moved to Maine, I added some Maine authors. And then when it came out in the most recent edition, I added a few writers from the UK. So it's definitely a, a process. The first publisher was so small in Minnesota that they, they raised Shetland ponies as their main business. <laughs> they, they took books around to uh, book fairs in, in paper bags. And um, it was a modest beginning. <laughs> for my but it was the beginning. <laughs> right. It was the beginning, yes, it's true. Oh. And the photo of the all rising is a beautiful, beautiful cover on on that book. Yes, yes it is. Just the College of the Atlantic outdoor sculpture. Mm, very, very lovely. So you went, you included some stories from the UK, and I know that you've also um, taken a bit of a look at sort of a global perspective. What other cultures, how they uh, think about aging, how they treat aging women. And uh, that you're in, you're, there may be some groups or associations that you would like us to know about as well. Well, uh, let's back up a little bit. That I, uh, I did this, uh, this book, the third edition in 2017, and I hope I have a more international perspective than before. But probably the most important thing to say is that all these countries have national health care. And as long as we don't have it, we are really behind. We are losing a lot of potential for healthy aging uh, in this country. So there are various studies in various countries. I remember one from Finland, which the people who were chronologically old did not want to call themselves old, but they used old as a kind of cover or justification if they were sick or if they were um, inactive. So that was that was an interesting 
A lot of research has shown that people who are old don't want to claim that identity. So this is a big struggle, I think, for women particularly to say I am old instead of I am older. Mm-hmm. There's quite a political difference mm-hmm. there, I think. There's a lot of good research coming out of Canada and the UK. Uh, Germany is another place. Uh, there's an interesting study done a long time ago called the Berlin Wisdom Study. Now, wisdom is a positive stereotype of aging, and I have challenged it as a stereotype. But at any rate, they were trying to find out what are the components of wisdom. It's one thing just to toss off the word and say, okay, old people are wiser. What, what might be some of the parts of that? And I don't remember everything in their list, but one of them was tolerance, part of wisdom. And another was being able to live with uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Certainly in the COVID year, we've all had to learn to live with, with uncertainty. But according to this Berlin study, older people who are characterized by wisdom have that, that, that ability. But what do you see as the differences to healthy aging living in a society where there is national health care versus none? Well, I think it's enormous, really, when you think about it, because societies with national health care have been protecting, taking care of people through their lifespan. And in our society, unfortunately, plagued by a rugged individualism and the myth that we're all all separate. Uh, you have to be canny, I think, to arrive at old age in good shape. You have to be skeptical on the one hand of certain claims. You have to uh, pay attention to what's happening to your friends and what their doctors are telling them. You have to read. There's a column in the New York Times, the well, the well column. So it's possible to um, to uh, take action and be aware and find out what's going on in your state to support healthy aging. In, in um, Maine, for example, we have a very strong AARP project on uh, scam, scam protection. So every month, this is a little off topic, every month we get a list of the current scams in Maine. That This is very helpful, especially to people who are live alone and might be inclined to talk to a stranger on the phone. And uh, there's some protection there. Also, we have uh, Susan Collins who's on the aging committee of the Senate. I think it's a subcommittee. Mm-hmm. And she's been helping getting uh, research for Alzheimer's. And uh, I was sorry her opponent didn't win in the last election, but I'm <laughs> hoping that she can vote for the voting rights bill now. Good old Susan, or Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, because it's just tragic that one Democrat has that much control to uh, stop the uh, the theft actually the theft of voting of voters rights uh, right now that the other side is uh, trying to do mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think you raise a really important point about looking uh within our own local our states our own states and our own local communities because many times when we talk with women it's well what can i do you know i'm just one person and yes. um, it's always a question about how do we raise our collective voices to have some impact. Mm-hmm. So do you have any other suggestions? Well, our local library organized the march after Trump's election. <laughs> so obviously there was, there was an outlet for activism there. 
But I think in Maine, at least, libraries are very important places, and especially in rural communities. Mm -hmm. And the newcomers, the so-called retired people, and the natives often have um, very good relationships, and they can together come up with some some good ideas. Our big problem, one of them now, is lack of transportation in rural Maine. But I think that uh, wherever women find themselves at various, even at the pickleball court, I suppose they could organize. <laughs> I mentioned that because it's one of the many things I can no longer do. Oh. <laughs> so tell us, um, if, you don't, if you don't mind, I know that you uh, had a stroke about a year ago and that you're obviously recovering well, but I was just, can you, what, what can you tell us about how this experience has shaped your own, your own sense of aging and your, maybe your views? Well, it was certainly a surprise to have my life change overnight dramatically. And my partner's life changed overnight because she became a full-time caregiver, less full-time at the moment. It's been 15 months. It's been a, a very, uh, very challenging and often very, very frustrating experience. There's a Zoom support group, which helps. I had to give up my radio program. I had just begun a, a community radio program called All About Aging. I did it for about six or eight months. So I'm, I'm missing that. I'm also very, very sorry that I can't swim, that I can't drive, that I can't paddle my little canoe, that I can't take walks with friends. Now, maybe one day I will be able to do some of those to some degree, but I'm living with the uncertainty of, will I get a little better? Will I get much better? How long will it take? If, if I could ever drive again, what, what, how much, how much time would, would that take, if ever? And I also have to be realistic about the possibility that I may do none of these things again. As far as my book on aging and my current experience, I have to laugh because I have been known to say aging sucks. <laughs> but I don't want to be quoted, obviously. Saying that, what we won't tell anyone. <laughs> you don't tell no. I think when I was in my 60s and wrote that book, I talked very blithely about readjustment, readaptation, um, re renewing yourself, finding other outlets. Uh, and I had no idea really how hard that would be or how, how uh, abstract those concepts were. I talked about giving up driving, how hard that would be. Well, little did I know that that would be really a terrible uh, reduction in freedom and and uh, independence. One of the saddest days in the last 15 months was the day that my car was put on a trailer and hauled out. <laughs> so there it went. Oh. And especially in rural Maine, not having a car is really, uh, well, you need friends with cars and older women need to keep, keep driving and the women who can't drive anymore need, need friends who can. <laughs> What else about my stroke? Well, I think that's that's enough. Obviously, I don't want to see myself as a victim. I do relate differently now to people in wheelchairs. I, I, I identify with them. I think before, people in wheelchairs were, were the not me, the other. And I felt a little awkward around them. Now, what, what do I say? Well, now I just very readily engage them in conversation. And they're often very 
very willing to, to talk. So that's, that's something else about, about stroke. It's, it's an extremely individual experience. Everyone has, goes through it differently. Different parts are in, injured. I lost my dominant side, my left side, so I can't write. I've had a lot of therapy. I am certainly a little more mobile than I was uh, a year ago even, but um, it's just a very, very frustrating experience. I drop things. I have folders of papers and they spread out everywhere. And if I bend over to pick them up, I get spasms in my middle section. So on the other hand, I have to say now I have a good life. I have a loving partner, wonderful friends. It's summer in Maine. We hope it we hope it lasts, and people are coming to visit me this summer. So on all those occasions, the, the experience of stroke will be in the background, will, will not be highlighted. Mm -hmm. mm. But, I wish you very, very well with that. I, it's, and then to you. have that experience during COVID, which, is, which was such oh, a yeah. time of tremendous isolation anyway. Yes, that's true. But at least I wasn't envious of friends who were running around doing things, having a great time uh, that I was excluded from. Everybody was shut up at home. Right. Right. <laughs> so what occupies your uh, intellectual self these days? Uh, good question. Um, I have a lot of books to read. I I'm a, was originally a Victorian literature scholar. I'm going back to some, uh, some Victorian books. Someone told me I must read the unabridged uh, Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. Oh. It sat on my table for a while. <laughs> it's huge. I think I better, having been in women's studies, I really get, need to get to the original unabridged edition. <laughs> but the other thing that's occupying me now is sorting papers for archives, for lesbian and gay archives. And that goes back to the 70s for me. So I've got these thick files of, of everything, the kinds of things archivists tell you to save posters and um, any kind of uh, ephemera. And in these letters, I find out that I was very strongly opinionated about a number of things <laughs> and got into contests of, with people about what, what I thought they were they were doing wrong and what I thought they should change. But I'm mellower now. I, I still can write letters to the editor saying, this is wrong, this should be changed. But a paragraph is a little all I can manage at this point. <laughs> is there any possibility that you can resurrect the radio show? That's a good question. They've been very they've been very patient. They know that right now and for the foreseeable future, I won't be able to. Part of the problem is uh, lack of energy, just setting things up. Well, as you know, it's a very involving, time-consuming process to arrange, as you are, and um, then even to be be awake for an hour of the <laughs> of the program. But it's possible I can get it back. I that's a big question mark. That's an uncertainty. I met so many interesting people doing that program that that was intellectual stimulation for mm -hmm. me. That I that I yeah, I'm curious about how you uh, framed that that program. Who did you have as guests and and? Yes, yes, I did, and uh, some of them were by phone call, long distance. Some of them were in the studio, and uh, 
there were call-ins, but I didn't get any positive call-ins. I got one from someone who wrote me a long letter later on about my unchristian views of aging, which startled me because I couldn't think that I had said anything that was in any way indicative of any personal bias or lack of it as far as religion. But um, there were people who had created interesting programs. I think I had the, the, the cognitive researchers from University of Maine Psych Lab called the CARE Lab. And I even through, went through one of their tests. And I'm pleased to report that I failed the test that Trump bragged about, this clock face test. <laughs> well, I, I remember the numbers, but I got the spaces all scrambled. So the test taker said, well, you can try that one again. <laughs> and the second time I, I aced that test, the clock face test. <laughs> See, it's all about competence. <laughs> right. right, right. Gail, do you have but, any um, comment questions you want to ask? Uh, you know, I'm I'm interested in your women's and and lesbian studies, and so is that part of the part of what you were doing in in terms of aging? Um, have you specifically focused on that in terms of aging? Well, that's an interesting question, Gail. I was talking the other day to a friend about this very thing, and she pointed out that I like to get into fields at the very beginning. So when I got into women's studies, I didn't know what it was, but I applied for a job to be director of one, creative <laughs> director. I figured, well, nobody else. This is Minnesota in the 70s. You know, communism was still pretty dangerous, much less feminism. So... <laughs> Luckily, there were people at Mankato State who were very aware of what it was and were teaching the right classes. Mm -hmm. And then in, in, in a decade or so, I had a chance to uh, teach lesbian and gay literature. And later on, uh, gay and lesbian aging, which was a lot of fun because people who took it, of course, were older students. And some used it as a coming out experience. I had a 76-year-old Navy nurse who was in the closet her whole life. When she signed up for this class, that was her, her stepping out. So there have been some connections uh, between uh, sexual orientation and, uh, and aging. Then it seemed to me, this is now the 90s or so, I really had nothing new to say about LGBT studies that I thought. But it, I looked around and I thought, there are not many voices about humanities and aging and feminist aging and critical gerontology. There were these groups that I found in Europe, the European Network of Age Studies. University of Graz in Austria is a center of that wonderful work. And the, the version over here is the North American Network of, of Age Studies. So those, being in touch with those groups, but I can't go to their conferences now, so, so that's, that's hard. But at any rate, there were a few voices I read uh, Martha Holstein, of course, and uh, Margaret Gallet, and uh, some other people. Uh, and it just seemed that I could make an impact on a field that was in this very, very beginning stage, and that lesbian and gay studies were so well launched that others could, uh, could carry the ball. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, there's certainly more to be done <laughs> around women and aging, for sure. 
So um, we really appreciate, Peg, your being with us today and giving us a sense of history and for, for being bold uh, in those early years to, uh, to do this work and to make these mar- wonderful contributions. It may, it, you really, your work has had a major impact on, on me and I just wanna thank you for that. Well, I appreciate the, the tribute, Catherine, and I know as an anthropologist that you have, will have a particular lens on these uh, aging uh, issues, and uh, that's all to the good. And Gail, I appreciate all the good questions you asked me today. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, nice to meet you. Yes.